God's, God's word this morning comes to us from the book of Psalms, uh, from Psalm 146. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you in the worship folder. Um, and I invite you all to stand out of reverence for the word of the Lord. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we've been in a, in a short series on uh, knowing God. And Christianity's claim is that you won't actually know yourself. You won't know yourself. You won't know why you're here. You won't know why your life matters unless you know the God of the Bible. But it's not only good for you, it's not only good for followers of Jesus, it's actually good for the whole world. Knowing God is good for the world. It's good for followers of Jesus, but it's also good for, uh, you know, for your non-religious neighbors. It's good for your co-workers. It's good for the kids who are on uh, your kids' soccer teams. Uh, it's good for your unbelieving family members. Knowing God is good for them, too. It's good for you. It's good for them. And, or maybe, that, maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you have been coming to church, but you're, you're exploring Christianity, um, but you're not really sure about it yet, uh, but you're willing to listen. Let me suggest that knowing God is good for you. It's good for you, too. And let me suggest that knowing the God of the Bible, knowing the God of the Scriptures, resonates with one of your core desires, one of your ultimate hopes for yourself and for the world. And that hope, that desire that all human beings share is the desire for justice. It's uh, a desire for a world that works right. Uh, it's the desire for justice. Justice is a core theme of all of the scriptures. It's both an attribute, a characteristic of God, but it's also central to biblical Christianity. And I, I realize, I understand that you don't have to look far um, to see headlines or uh, articles online or things on your Facebook feed um, in which the church as an institution or maybe even professing Christians are, have been and are guilty of, uh, of horrible injustices and horrific evils. Um, but that's 100% and antithetical to the Christian faith, to biblical faith. Listen to the words of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, Micah was a, a, is a prophet in the Old Testament, 
And he put it beautifully. He said, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. There it is. Uh, Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with God. And those phrases are all in parallel. That means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, to walk with God, and to do justice aren't two different movements of the Christian life, but they're actually one and the same. You walk with God by doing justice. This is what the Apostle John says in a small letter in the New Testament called 1 John. He says, If anyone has the world's goods and yet sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? There it is, two passages, Old and New Testament, in which God says, this is what biblical Christianity, this is what real biblical religion is all about. So justice is central to who God is. It's also central to Christianity. The question is, what is it? And how do we do it? And that's what we're looking at this morning. What is justice? And how do we live justly? How do we live just lives? How do we do justly? So first, what is justice? As I said, justice is an important theme throughout uh, the Bible, throughout the Old and New Testament. There's something like over 200 uses of the word in the Old Testament. And it comes up, the biblical writers use various uh, words to describe it, but it's it's the same central word, justice. Parents, you know that if you want to communicate something that's important, you often, with your kids, have to repeat yourself over and over and over again. Sometimes that gets exhausting. Well, God repeats himself over and over again, over 200 times. He repeats this word justice. Uh, He wants us to see how important it is to our lives and to the world. So what is it? The biblical idea of justice can really be summarized uh, in this short phrase. It it can be captured with with this notion that justice is giving people their due. Biblical justice is giving people their due. It's giving people what they deserve. And there's both a positive and a negative aspect to that, giving people what they deserve. There's kind of a, 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 a concept or a principle of, uh, of ret- uh, retribution, but also restoration. There's a retributive and a restorative aspect to biblical justice. Uh, retributive justice is the idea of righting a wrong. It's paying for that thing that you stole or took that didn't belong to you. But restorative justice, the other, the positive aspect to God's justice, has to do with searching out for the vulnerable and uh, the people who are exploited for the purposes of helping them. So justice is giving people their due, negatively paying for what you did did wrong, but also positively um, getting what you deserve in terms of dignity and fairness and worth because you are a human being. You are made in God's own image. And the image of God, if you look into this theme of justice throughout the Bible, you come to realize that the image of God, the fact that humans have been made in God's image, is, is, it sort of serves as the bedrock for the Bible's teaching on justice. It's the foundation for everything that follows in the scriptures about justice. 
see in the opening pages of the Bible, God makes people, he makes men and women in his own image, and he crowns them with dignity and significance and worth, and he gives them a mission to multiply his image throughout the world, essentially to fill the earth with justice, with right relationships, what the Bible calls righteousness. And so wickedness throughout the scriptures isn't just violating some sort of, uh, so, you know, a list of rules that's kind of been imposed by a far-off deity, but actually wickedness, is, and you see the word in, in, in verse 9 of Psalm 146, wickedness is mistreating someone else. It's ignoring the image of God in them. It's violating uh, their image of Godness uh, that they inherently possess by being human beings. My kids do a lot of art projects, um, and maybe and maybe if you're a parent, maybe your kids did too when they were younger. I'm not talking about sort of uh, Picasso quality stuff or Banksy, um, more like watercolor scribbles and uh, you know finger paints and things like that. And I regularly keep way too many of them because I'm sort of sentimental and sappy like that. Um, but on occasion, there's some that I have to dispose of because they're cluttering and taking up too much space and uh, you know that's the real confession some of these I have to throw away from time to time but I've learned that what I can't do is throw them away while they're looking <laughs> otherwise what happens uh, they're devastated right Papa uh, you know, I made that for you <laughs> you know it's just this scribbling that sort of illegible and um, right it's not really worth much but there's something, isn't, I think that's a right response because there's something innate in my kids. There's something, a part of them that recoils when something that they, they've created is marred and ruined and, and treated like trash. Why? Why is that? It's because it's personal. The art is a reflection of the heart of the artist. It's a reflection of their minds and their personalities. And justice is God's concern because when people do injustice, when we treat each other and other people as less than image bearers of God, it mars and ruins and treats like trash both the artistic masterpieces themselves, but also the artist. And so you see in verse 9, uh, you know, the translation I read from says... He frustrates the ways of the wicked. There's another translation that says, He brings the wicked to ruin. And you say, well, you know, isn't that, isn't that a little bit much that God brings to ruin the wicked? That he destroys the wicked? That he judges the wicked? That he devastates the wicked? And the answer is no. That's actually just simple justice. Um, if, if you destroy something, God is in a sense saying that you deserve the destruction that you unleashed on someone else made in God's image. You ruined God's image, and now you deserve to be ruined. That's just straightforward, simple justice. And some of you might, uh, you know, you might recoil from that, that kind of language, that kind of talk, and I understand that. That's, that's the kind of language of judgment, and it's a major turnoff for many people in terms of biblical Christianity. Uh, it might be one of the reasons that religion in general or Christianity in particular seems to use you know, or someone you know may be passe or regressive. But think about it. What happens 
when someone does unspeakable evil? What happens when what happened when Osama bin Laden was killed? There was collective rejoicing. What happened when the Third Reich and Nazi Germany were defeated uh, by the Allies? There was dancing in the streets. And what happens when justice is withheld from people? What happens when someone dies unjustly at the hands of a police officer? There's protest in the streets. What happens when someone like Jeffrey Epstein takes his own life and doesn't stand before a jury of his peers and a judge and is sentenced and is convicted of the horrific evil that he enacted on other people? There's something in us that recoils from that. We want justice served. Why is that? Why is it that children, that as children, we read stories and we rejoice when the dragon is vanquished, when the evil sorcerer is killed, when the giant is defeated? It's because God, who is the source of justice, has stamped his own image into your very being. So who is this God? Who is that God? Who is the source of justice? Look for a second at how Psalm 146 describes him. In verse 6, he's described as the creator. He made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. He's the maker of all things. The creation is where that theme of justice begins. And it's because the, the world, everything that you see, was made at the fingertips of this just God. He is the creator. But notice also what's important to this God. That's verse 7 through 9. God makes the world, he creates the world, but he also makes justice. It's the same word uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 7, where, it, uh, where our translation says, he upholds the cause of the oppressed. That's the same word. He made the world, he makes justice. The creation comes out of the overflow of God's justice. He wants to see a world that beautifully reflects his own righteous character. And so what does that beautiful world look like? It looks like a place that's free from oppression, a place where people are treated with dignity, where kids don't go to bed hungry and cold, where the disabled are significant and given help, where the lonely are put in families, where single parents are given support, where those who are trafficked are liberated, where the unborn and elderly are protected, where the immigrant is valued. Why? Because that is a a reflection of God's own heart. And you know, just as a quick aside, if you read, if you read the Bible straightforward, if you just read the Bible straight through, you're going to find places where it challenges you, especially as it comes to uh, the things that you value or uh, or put emphasis on politically. So you're going to find places in the Bible where you hear God speaking and you say, you know, that sounds a lot like my sort of very conservative Republican friends. But there's also places in the Bible where you're going to say, that, you know what, that sounds like my progressive liberal Democrat friends. And that's not to say that one party is more right or wrong or, uh, or anything like that. It's, it's to say that actually both of them, all people, don't hold to the truth in its entirety. And it's to say that God and his followers don't comfortably fit into the box of American politics. See, to your friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, 
you are sometimes going to sound like a conservative right-wing Puritan, and sometimes you are going to sound like a progressive social justice warrior. And if you have questions about that, we can talk about that after the service. But God is a God of justice, and that doesn't fit into, into human beings' definitions of justice. It's part of his character. He creates a just world, and he's faithful to that world even when it rebels. That's what the psalmist says. He says, he remains faithful forever. He upholds and executes justice as a good king. And that powerful God uses his power for the powerless. He's the mighty one who who is on the side of the marginalized, whose attention is on the marginalized. He's the Lord and his heart beats for the last and the least and the losers. That's what verses 7 through 9 are all about. If you want to know what justice is, you have to get near this God. You have to get near the God of the Bible. So that's what justice is. How do we do justly? How do we live lives that are characterized by justice? Well, that could be a whole series of sermons, but let me just begin with this. If God is a God of justice, and he he made us to reflect his own heart, his own justice, his own righteous character, then how do we do it? First, this poet suggests that you have to know, you have to see, you have to understand the limits of human ability. That's verses 3 and 4. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. What the poet is saying is, if you are looking for hope, if you need help, if you're searching for justice to be perfectly executed in our reality, then you're looking in the wrong place. You, in fact, need something that's supernatural. You need something that stands outside of reality itself. Now, what he's not saying is that you shouldn't turn to people uh, outside of yourself and work towards good ends. He's not saying that uh, human governments, uh, healthcare workers, uh, your parents can't help you, uh, can't give you aid and support. They can and they should. But you shouldn't trust them to get you there perfectly. That should be fairly obvious. And that shouldn't make you a cynic either. It should cause you to be a lot more realistic on what finite humans are actually capable of doing. You see, humans have been about the business. They have been attempting to fix our individual and collective and global problems since the dawn of time. And the question is, how is that working for us? How is that working for us? See, you have to know the limits of human ability. And friends, especially those of you who are Christians, that should drive you towards prayer. Prayer that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And friends, that's a kingdom that that humans cannot achieve, that humans cannot build. That's something that only God, in his own power, in his own resources, in his own timing, can do. So you have to know the limits of human ability. But second, you have to own, you have to confess and own your own injustice. I don't know about you, but phrases like the ones that you see in verses 8 and 9 make me a bit nervous. God loves the righteous. God brings the wicked to ruin. He frustrates the wicked. 
And you don't need, I know that you don't need a ton of self-awareness to know that you don't measure up, I don't measure up to any kind of standard, let alone God's. We don't see and treat people as more significant than us, as image bearers of God. Our lives are usually less focused on the needs of the vulnerable and the exploited around us and more on securing our own comfort and social mobility. And you see in scripture, it's not merely enough to not do the wrong thing and avoid retributive justice. You have to actually seek out opportunities to bring about restorative justice, to give people what they deserve. And if that's the standard, friends, not just avoiding the wrong things, but actually doing the right things, giving up your time and your talents and your finances to better someone else's situation, then we all know that none of us have done that perfectly. None of us have even measured up to that. We are all, in fact, the wicked that verse 9 is talking about. We are the unjust. We are the ones looking to inadequate princes and their plans that will eventually come to nothing. And if that's the case, then God's justice is ruined for us. It means that you and I have marred God's world and we deserve to be ruined. We deserve to be frustrated. We deserve to have God's retributive justice fall on us. But friends, there's good news. There's amazingly good news. It's found in verse 5. Because you see, the God of Psalm 146 is described in many ways throughout this psalm and throughout the Bible as the creator, as the powerful king who executes perfect justice. He's the mighty one who is on the side of the marginalized, on the, on the, on the side of the victims against the oppressors. But friends, verse 5 says he's also the God of Jacob. This God who's a God of justice is also the God of Jacob. Now that's a name that for years I just read right by. I just sort of glossed over. He's the God of Jacob. We have a tendency to read right over phrases like that. But it's wonderfully important. Because do you know who Jacob was? Jacob was, he was one of the founders of the nation of Israel. And do you know what kind of guy he was? If you read through the pages of Genesis, he was a liar, he was a manipulator, he was a cheat, he was a horrible father. He was a guy who was continually focused on looking out for himself at the expense of other people. And yet, God in his grace, God in his mercy, so identifies with the scoundrel Jacob that God's own name is changed. That God says, if you want to call me something, call me the God of Jacob. That's how he wants to be known. The God of cheats. The God of the unjust. The God of sinners. The God of Jacob's. How can that be? Friends, God is the God of Jacob's. Like you and me, because he is the, he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus was God come in the flesh, and how did he come? He came as, uh, did he come to the rich and powerful, to the elites? No, Jesus came as God made vulnerable, a baby. And not a baby born in a palace, but a baby born into poverty. He was the son of a teenage girl who was part of a despised people group. 
And even at a very young age, you read in the Gospels that his family had to flee political oppression and persecution, and they became immigrants in the land of Egypt. They became sojourners. They became foreigners. Jesus was homeless for several years during his earthly ministry. He had to rely on the hospitality and generosity of other people. And when he died, he died with nothing. He was crucified naked and buried in a tomb that didn't belong to him. And this Jesus was the perfectly righteous one, the one whom God loved. This is, this is the righteous one whom God loved in Psalm 46, 146. Jesus was the one who searched for ways to bring about restorative justice. He came to feed the hungry, to heal the blind, to befriend the friendless, to release the captives. And yet, at the end of his life, you see him on a cross. Why is that? It's because Jesus came not only to execute justice, not only to bring about restorative justice, but also to be executed for our injustice. He came not only to vanquish evil, but in himself be so identified with evildoers that the Apostle Paul says he became sin. All our injustice, all our evil, all our wickedness was laid on Jesus and he died on behalf of the guilty. He suffered in the place of the wicked. Friends, he was your substitute. And then when he rose again on the third day, when he came alive again, God declared him righteous. So now Jesus can give you his perfect righteousness. He can give you the gift of righteousness. He gives you the gift of standing upright in his own perfect justice. See, friends, you need to know the limits of human ability and you need to own your own injustice but to also to live justly, to live a life that's characterized, that's, that's motivated by the justice of God, you also need to put your hope, you need to put your trust, you need to find your help and your confidence in the God of Jacob. You need to put your trust in Jesus. You need to believe this Jesus, who not only brings about God's justice, but endures God's justice for you absorbs it in his own body. One last thing. Psalm 146 is the first uh, of a final collection of psalms. There's 150 of them in the book of Psalms. And Psalm 146 begins sort of the last few. And they're unique because they all begin with this phrase, praise the Lord. They begin and end with this phrase, praise the Lord. Uh, the Hebrew is hallelujah. Uh, praise, hallelujah. Uh, and then Yah is short for Yahweh, the name of the Lord of the Old Testament. Praise the Lord. The Psalms see what the, the, what the poets in, in the Hebrew Scriptures are doing, are saying the Psalms end in praise, and this world will end in praise. It will end in delight. It will end in exuberant joy. And that's interesting because, especially earlier in the book of Psalms, the earlier poems are marked by cries for help. They're marked by cries for justice. How long, O oh Lord? How long will evildoers get away with what they've been doing? But at the end, at the end of Psalms, everything is right. Everything is in its place. And that's the destiny 
of the Psalms, a world made right, a world characterized by perfect justice, a world in which there is perfect enjoyment of God and his creation, and it's celebrated in friendship and dancing and feasting and endless delight. That's the destiny of this world. And the question is, how do you get there? Psalm 146 says it's the way of faith. It's putting your confidence, it's finding your help, it's putting your hope in the God of Jacob who is for you in Jesus Christ. Amen, friends. Let's go to him in prayer. God of Jacob, you are a God of justice. You are a holy God, perfect in your righteousness, perfect in your wisdom, the source of everything good. You created this world, and yet uh, we have marred it. We have ruined it by our own sin, by the ways in which we have looked out for our own interests at the expense of other people, uh, both by avoiding wrongdoing, but also not searching for the ways in which you have called us to look out for those who are weak uh, in our own families, in our own lives, in our own neighborhoods. Father, we confess that to you, and yet at the same exact time, we know that you are God full of grace and compassion. You are God of Jacob. Uh, because you have given us Jesus who perfectly executes your justice and at the same time is a substitution, is a sacrifice for our own injustice. We know that he pleads our cause and our case at your right hand and so we can come to you full of hope knowing that you will give us help when we need it, knowing that one day you will make everything right Father, bless us with that hope and assurance, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.